And and again, and, and I just feel bad for some of these kids and players, whether they're male or female, that have a coach that is literally in it for the wrong reasons. So many clubs out there. And again, I go back to the directors. It's their job to understand that. Like, yes, we're in a need for coaches and we have a huge need, but do we really? We, we need to have a we need to have a proper conversation about this nationally. We do, and it's not being done, right? And I, I have this I have this idea or this phrase, and, and I, it's quite simple. At what cost? That's that's my that's my life, right? Yes, we're winning. Yes, we've got all these championships. Yes, we're you know this program is successful. Or yes, we have this status. At what cost? And I don't want to look back in 15 years' time and start to hear stories from people who've been through it now and are going through it and have been through it in recent years, where they tell us terrible things about how their lives were affected and how their you know, later life was affected. I don't want to wait for that. I don't want to wait for that to, to come to pass. You know, We've already done that in our professional league here in the country, and we've already found out on the back end of all the things that were going wrong, and nobody's shone a light on it, light on it at the start. And that's yep. been done, that's been talked about, and things are in place to change that from happening. But in the youth game, in the collegiate game, we're not having that conversation right now, and we should be. People will begin to understand this point more poignantly. If you are not the person developing that player for something that you know is the long is your club at the end, it, it is much easier for people to say, well, I'm just going to do this for three years because it benefits them. And that's what I'm seeing. I'm seeing coaches who say, well, I'm going to do this, forget the holistic approach, forget their level of learning, forget their level of development. Joy sticking a player in the very low cognitive stages of learning has some merit in terms of developing neural pathways to the brain to make decisions and understand them. We won't get into all the science of it, but there is an element of blocked practice or fixed practice that can aid learning. To take that and run with it to the extent that three years later, you haven't allowed the player to engage, speculate, learn, develop, is not just a fallacy, it's a crime. Why is nobody having this conversation now? There's been times where I actually had, <laughs> I had a, I was coaching boys in Seattle and there was a coach who just couldn't believe it. I was coaching against him and he was like, wait, you're the coach? I can't believe it. And he literally says this to me and I'm sitting there going, what? <laughs> like, what age are we in right now? Are we, are we in the fifties right now? I don't understand. And it just made me laugh because I looked over at the coach and I said, you created this. Mm -hmm. Obviously the parent didn't because they're forcing this kid to apologize to me, but you've instilled some sort of idea in your head, in this kid's head, that it's okay to talk to women that way. When I started this podcast, I promised that I would ask the, the real questions. And if everyone's out there listening, they're like, well, I wish they'd ask this, I wish they'd ask that. And we gotta, we gotta do this in the interest of balance. I mean, we have to support more roots into coaching for everybody who is underrepresented we need more diversity we need more uh, you know not just not just male female we need we need more that more with more diversity becomes a raising of standards across the board and a more inclusive sport and yep. quite quite frankly I'll, I'll go out and say this whether your opinion is that you know diversity should or shouldn't be a case i don't care football doesn't care football is for everybody and if you have the opinion of anything different Go and find something else to do because football is for everybody. Let's have it right. There are also some cowboys out there who are doing it, and I and I worry for some people in those environments. That's my soapbox. What's your experience having lived it and been in it? 
Um, yeah, I think that, again, just being someone who's been in so many different clubs and, and so many different roles, whether it's collegiate, I've seen both sides of the spectrum. You know, there's an amazing coaches that foster that love of the game and, you know, diversity and empowerment for the player. But then there's that coach that is still stuck in the old way of how you coach and joysticking and yelling a lot. And I don't know if that's just due to lack of understanding of what else is out there. I think that because we don't have enough youth coaches with the knowledge of how to coach and develop players, we get players that have to be joysticked at certain levels because that's what they got when they were younger. And so they don't have the inherent knowledge of how to play the game because they've been told how to play it the entire time. This is not, you know, maybe it is endemic of, of youth sport in this country at the moment. Carly Lloyd's comments recently were scathing in terms of the youth environment around female players. And I want to try and add a balanced response, but I do agree with that. And I have seen it for myself. I've been an ECL director. I've been in the college game and in the youth game. And I am concerned for certainly the extremes that I see in the youth game now around the country. Welcome to this episode of the Pro Player Podcast. I'm delighted to welcome Melanie Thomas, USSFA licensed coach with a decade of experience in various roles in the game, former player. Melanie has worked as a coach educator, as a youth coach in college soccer. Her insights are not only relevant in terms of the history and how we got where we are in soccer in the United States today, but also still relevant for now in terms of the challenges faced by youth coaches and especially female coaches within the game as we go forward into, into the next chapter. So delighted to have Melanie with us today to share her experience and insight. It's going to be a great episode. Welcome, Melanie, to the Pro Player Podcast. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. So I'd like to start, Melanie, if I can. Uh, you know, it's great to have you on. Born in Denver, Colorado, working in, in soccer in America in your, in your whole career, former player. The level of insight we're going to get here today is going to be fantastic. What we really want to do is talk to all the aspiring coaches and players out there, give them a bit of inspiration and, and something they can draw strength from in terms of them walking the same journey that you have walked to this point and and will continue to walk for the remainder of your career. So let me just open it up. Let's start wherever you want to start. I think I think your story is a great one. Your journey perhaps is slightly different to a lot of people. So the floor is yours, Melanie. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess we can just start off with kind of how you alluded to the fact that my story is a little bit different. Um, but at the same time, there's various similarities that people probably have in the fact that obviously I started out as a player. Um, I was 17 and I was a center back. Um, and my coach at the time basically realized that I was coaching more than he was. Um, and so he encouraged me to start my U S soccer license journey when I was 17. Um, and so I started taking my e-license um, past that, kind of got hooked into the fact of, yeah, you're right, I am a coach as a center back. Um, you know, I'm always talking on the field, guiding people, telling people what to do. Um, and then after taking that license, I kind of realized that, oh, I actually really like this. Like, I like being able to mold players and help people out. Um, 
And so then I kind of started working within that youth environment, became a, a teacher uh, outside of as far as school goes um, collegiately. And then was trying to pursue my own player pathway in college, but I actually was in a couple of car accidents and tore my Achilles early on. So ended up just kind of playing WPSL there in the state of New Mexico um, and trying to coach while getting back to health. Realized that I wasn't really a great student. So uh, playing at the collegiate level wasn't really a good aspiration for me to have <laughs> um, because, uh, you know, I really cared about my education and wanted to make sure that I would finish my degree. So after I graduated college, I got in touch with a combine in Philadelphia and it was for the Philadelphia Independence. Um, and, you know, I was, I don't even remember how old I was, probably about 22, give or take. And, you know, just was like, yes, okay, this is my chance to get back into shape. I'm, you know, good to a good spot. I'm coaching. I feel good with the game still. Um, been playing WPSL, you know, went and tried out at the combine. Paul Riley was the head coach at the time. Um, which allowed me to, again, you know, feel like I was at a level that I could make the game and or make make it as a professional player. A week later, I got a phone call from Paul Riley. Uh, hey, you know, thanks for coming to the Combine. Um, would love to add you to the team. However, the league's folding, so we can't add any new players. And I was just like devastated because I was just like, oh my gosh, I finally made it. And now the league's folding. Um, so he actually put me in touch with Jen Lowler and Nielsen over in San Diego. And I ended up moving to San Diego to play with the WPSL over there for a year, give or take. And that was right after their, uh, national championship season. Um, so it was a great time to join the group, um, was still kind of coaching a little bit, which was nice. Um, was working with San Diego surf, um, and in that environment, cause it was just right there in La Jolla. Um, and then continued on the license journey was, did my C or did my D license and then realized I was kind of paying to play soccer because again, back then when WPSL, there was no money, there was no anything. Um, and I was like, maybe I should go back and get my degree. Um, so I went back and got my master's in sports administration was working with United, uh, yeah, Albuquerque United and then the university of New Mexico um, and their women's soccer program was a director of operations and then like kind of like a volunteer coach with them until they ended up having coaching changes in their staff and I graduated and so ended up continuing trying the to get into the collegiate game um, went and transferred to Iowa Western uh, Community College again uh, NJCAA um, division one school just had gotten off their division one championship um, season with Brad Sylvie as the head coach. And I was currently enrolled in my C license at the time uh, was taking it in Casa Grande, Arizona. And while I'm at my C license, I get a, a phone call from my head coach that had just hired me <laughs> over at Iowa Western saying, Hey, I'm going to take a job with Illinois. So I'm no longer going to be here. And I was like, what? <laughs> so for me, it was just kind of funny because then instead of a assistant coach at Iowa Western, I'm now the interim head coach at Iowa Western. Um, and so at that time I was, you know, in my mid twenties and had just moved to Omaha and didn't really know anybody. And 
was taken over the program for a little bit until the uh, AD could find a new head coach. And um, the funny part was I wasn't necessarily involved in that search for the head coach, other than the fact of they were bringing somebody in. Um, so my stint at Iowa Western was actually fairly short because the head coach who was hired um, had a very different ideology in his philosophy um, than myself. And so it became very evident early on that he and I weren't necessarily going to work well together, um, which was okay. Um, and I think that this is where, again, my journey is a little different in that I realized that, okay, I can make it through the season and, you know, I'll be professional and I need to make sure that, you know, I understand that this person is being put in this role for a reason and I need to be, I need to be respectful and, um, you know, just do my role and finish it out. And I put in my two weeks notice when I could, um, toward the end of the season, let the athletic director know, let the coach know, um, and then kind of took a reset button of, okay, well now what do I want to do? Like, do I want to go back into youth coaching? Do I want to be a director? Do I want to stay in the college game? Um, do I want to try playing again? <laughs> you know, where, where am I at? So um, <clears throat> at that point, I ended up connecting with Heather Dyke, who became the head coach at the University of New Mexico. Um, she and I had worked together various times at the Olympic de development level um, through ODP in the state of New Mexico. And as a female, you know, head coach, I was just kind of like, Hey, let me pick your brain. Let me see what you think, you know, where do you think I should start to aspire or start to like go after? Um, and she kind of alluded to, Hey, you know, find a home base reset, and then maybe see what opens up after a year or two. So I moved back to New Mexico, did some youth coaching, uh, was ended up being a director for the youth program there. And then a job in Seattle came up. And I was a Seattle Sounders fan forever. So it was kind of a, you know, good solid move for me of, okay, Seattle's here. They're offering a good salary. It's a full-time role and full-time coaching, which is what I wanted. Um, Cause not many people have the luxury of having a full-time coaching position. Um, so especially as a female or even just in general. Um, so I moved up there, uh, had some really good coworkers and, um, employers and the fact that uh, Eddie Henderson was one of the technical directors that we had. Um, Eddie works on the U.S. club board and has, you know, kind of been in the game for years, even back when, when he was a player. And <clears throat> he kind of pushed me to get my B license. Um, so I applied for my B license and got accepted. And this is the, this was the time frame when U.S. soccer actually had people applying for B licenses and getting denied. And, you know, it became this huge controversy of why am I getting denied? Why are they getting accepted? And to the point where there was somebody in my club at the same time that was applying, who was a male and I was a female applying um, and I got accepted and he didn't. And so it was just kind of funny in the fact that, you know, the way that the environment was working within licensure, within, you know, coaching roles kind of seemed to have this stigma of, you know, everybody needs female coaches or every, you know, we need to increase our female awareness. And um, anyway, fast forward to was there for three years, um, two ish, three years. Um, and Eddie kind of pushed me to be a coach educator um, for us club. So the 
environment in Seattle started to change a bit. That was when the Development Academy was, um, you know, folding and or coming to an end with U.S. soccer. So then I um, was working with Seattle Rain as a volunteer coach with the Development Academy. And Sam Lady, who was the head coach I was working with, ended up pushing me to kind of start looking again and reaching out to clubs that were ECNL or clubs that had development academies that might be moving into the new, what was girls Academy or DPL system um, ended up connecting with Barry Ritson in LA and then they became LA surf and was with them as a director as well. And then a head GA um, and then also became a scout because at the time um, we had kind of merged with what was the surf um, and or LA SoCal so there wasn't as many coaching head coach roles. And um, so he kind of pieced my salary together by allowing me to do scouting to create um, a network of players within the environment in LA. And so then fast forward, um, COVID hit and, you know, LA kind of shut down, but we were still driving to Arizona to play. Um, I was getting my A license at the time. And happened to uh, get in touch with someone who was working with the Rapids and being from Denver and living in New Mexico for so long, I always really loved Denver and the environment in LA and the climate in LA due to COVID was so tumultuous that I was like, I need to get out of here. Um, so although I had a lot of job offers from various different roles and positions, I decided to reach out to Donald Gillies at Colorado Rapids and said, Hey, I'm moving here. What do you got? Um, and it ended up working out, had a couple of, um, teams for me, ended up doing a futsal coordinator role as well, um, as coach education for them, um, which was nice. Was there for a year, kind of some changes happened within the ECNL environment and their program for ECNL on the girls side. Um, they ended up doing E64 that spring as, as a second tier and there wasn't necessarily any openings kind of similar to what was happening in LA to where I wanted to kind of take that next step in my career. And it wasn't opening there in that place. So then I started looking again, um, got reached out to actually by Stuart Hilton here with Sting Austin. Um, and so although I'd only been in Denver for a year, um, I basically said, okay, ECNL, uh, let's go. Um, and one of the other reasons for the major change was I had actually interviewed for an assistant role with the Red Stars with Chris Petroselli that same summer. And it was between me and a couple other candidates in the final rounds. And he had said, because I had asked, uh, you know, well, why wasn't I chosen or what can I work on for my interview moving forward to make sure that, you know, next time roles like this come above or come up that, you know, I might be actually fully considered for this role. Um, and he mentioned that it had to do with just higher level experience within ECNL or GA or um, that kind of an environment for longer. And I was like, okay, so then definitely moving to Austin. Um, so then now here I'm in Austin um, with Sting Austin FC. I just recently parted ways with their club and have started with Talent Scout um, and then continued to start applying again for some new roles that fit my aspirations, um, which is either to step into the collegiate role again or into the pro game. So um, 20 years worth of coaching is a lot. And uh, I tend, like I said, was bouncing around all over the place. 
Um, but I think that that's something that's very important for women to know and understand. And even just other young coaches that you're always going to come into a role that maybe doesn't fit and you don't need to stay in that role if it doesn't fit and that you need to find one that works out for you. It's a fantastic, obviously, you know, a whistle-stop tour of two decades of development and, and adversity and struggle, but it, it is so important for people to hear the real the real life side of it. And obviously it's something that resonates with me and a lot of people who've worked, spent their life in in, in, in soccer. It, it isn't as simple as saying, well, I'm going to go here and do this job and everything's going to work out great. I'm going to get promoted and, and I'm eventually going to run a bigger version and it doesn't work like that in this industry and, and I've said many times you can do a great job and still not get the reward or the you know the the thing that you were working towards because somebody's opinion is that well I want to go in a different direction or it's a different it's a you know a different barometer for success so I think people do need to hear that especially people who are coming into the game and deciding to devote their life to the game but also I think what your story provides is is huge amounts of strength in terms of dealing with adversity, dealing with change, picking yourself up, going again. And, and I love your idea of moving for the right opportunity and, and moving states and moving, you know, moving a long way for the right opportunity and not staying somewhere where you feel like your development or your worth is not, is not being valued. And that unfortunately is, is the story for a lot of people. They feel stuck or they feel, that they can't move on or move out. I've had definitely jobs in my life where I've been at odds with philosophically, as you said, what is going on. And you do, you know, I've walked away from those jobs and we've had coaches on the podcast who've said that they have no problem walking away from those environments because they know it won't get the best out of them. And you're living, breathing proof of, you know, an aspiring coach who understands that. Can you talk to us a little bit more about the strength and the, the grit that it takes to first admit that and then to act on that because a lot of people don't. Yeah. And I think that I, I go back to when I, you know, ended up stopping at Iowa Western in at the end of the season and kind of just talking to my mentor, Heather, and the fact that I said, look, what do I need to do? And she was like, okay, really sit down and think about what you want as a coach. Like, are you wanting to be a director? Are you wanting to be in the youth game? Like, where is your niche? Like, where are you good um, at coaching? And like, where do you thrive? And at that point in time, because I was so young, the younger age groups were a lot easier and more attractive to me. Um, but again, as you alluded to, the challenges were so high because it's such a male dominant environment that I caught myself coming into um, climates where I was consistently having to fight for position within certain clubs or fight for teams at certain levels because you know, they've been around longer um and I had just come into the club or oh I've known so and so longer okay well that's not a reason to keep somebody in a position so again kind of as you alluded to I've had to sit down and say okay that's not right I don't feel that that's right so I'm going to go somewhere where somebody doesn't necessarily believe that and that was kind of where it was nice that Sting Austin kind of gave me a new insight away from you know some of the previous clubs that I'd had in the past that um, although they were really good at the time and, you know, supported my development, um, there just came a moment where I needed to take a step back and say, okay, I'm not developing anymore. I need to go somewhere where I can, can continue that and where somebody is going to help me continue that. And I think that's where I kind of go back to, again, coaching education and that like 
lust for knowledge. Um, I've also gone and gotten my UEFA C and my UEFA B. I'm currently testing on my UEFA B now. And just having the different methodology and the different ideology from U.S. soccer, from the Scottish FA, from uh, the United Soccer Coaches has allowed me to network and understand that I can and that I have that strength to be able to go out and search and strive for those jobs. I.e., even when I was at the convention, and this is a story that you and I have spoken on before, with um, I was in a lecture uh, with Yale and a, a panel of NWSL um, head coaches and you know, Everbach, who is the GM over at Gotham FC, kind of we were talking about, okay, NWSL staffing and coaches and what does it take to be in that environment? And she alluded to the fact that it was so surprising to her that a head coach role would come open and any male within the environment who had maybe had, you know, high school coaching experience would still apply for that job. Whereas someone who was a highly leveled, you know, say myself, a licensed coach, wouldn't put in an an application for that position because they didn't think they qualified or they didn't think they would get it or they didn't think they deserved it. And so I think that's something that I've took at heart in the fact that I need to take chances um, and that, you know, what's, what's an, what's an application? Nothing, right. An application doesn't hurt. Um, And if anything, Sometimes you get lucky and you get the interview um, like I had with Chris Petroselli and the Red Stars, or I had an interview last summer with um, Oakland Soul and Jessica Clinton, um, the USLW team. And I think that, again, that comes down to me identifying what my aspirations are and how hard I'm willing to go to get them um, and how, how much I'm willing to do to go after them. Um, now that being said, as a female, um, I am kind of an outlier that I don't have, um, I'm single. I don't have kids, so I don't have to worry about moving somebody else other than just myself, um, when it comes to searching for new roles. But I think that that is something that we do have a luxury of that if you, you know, even if you have a family, um, if you go after and, and really do your due diligence to search for the right role, a lot of times there's still opportunities. You mentioned there, obviously, uh, I was there at the United Soccer Coaches um, Convention last year and and the session that you talked to there with Yale and it was Casey Stoney was there as well with Tatiana uh, from the NWSL. It was a great hour, wasn't it, to be fair? It was a, a really insightful look on not just the league, but the future of the league. And, and I loved the way they spoke about what the future standards would be for coaches within the league. And um I also remember, I'll bring this up as well, because I remember Casey talking about uh, her advice to everybody was not to be a furry strawberry. And I thought that was a, an, in, an interesting comment in terms of culture. And I just think that's something we can share with everybody in terms of don't be a furry strawberry. Don't be out there. Uh, nobody wants to be that in, in, the, in the club you're in or the environment you're in. And I think that will resonate with some people as well. Uh, we're going to have Casey on at some point um, now that their season has ended. And also Yale as well, we're going to have on the podcast uh, in December. And I think both of those uh, you know, episodes are going to be amazing. You're alluding there to the fact that they, they spoke about um, you know, a female coach out there that might not even bother applying, even though they might have the prerequisite qualifications for an award. And I don't think enough people understand that that's a thing. I've certainly come across that. I've heard people talk about that in, in my 10 years in the States. 
why is that a thing? What, what can we do today to to change that and to help you know aspiring female coaches out there to get over that hurdle perhaps and and to go for these jobs? Because I remember talking to the United Soccer Coaches Association myself and and the women's group, the advocacy group there. I sit on the um, on the LGBTQ plus group and have done for five years. And I remember talking to the, the female advocacy group and, and they told me female coaches just don't apply for some jobs. They just don't put themselves forward for it. Why is that a thing? What can we do to change that? I think that obviously I can't speak for every female out there, but at the same token, um, I do think that it's starting to change. Um, I think that United, United Soccer um, Federation is making those steps to have the all-female licenses, which helps those that feel uncomfortable taking courses up against their male peers because a lot of the reasons that a lot of the females don't apply, I think is because they just don't have the licensure. They don't feel that they're qualified. Um, And so it's that fear of competition and being in an environment where we are viewed as a different entity unfortunately, that we feel we have to have so many different qualifications before we feel like we are qualified or even going to get a look. So I think the bonus is United um, States Soccer Federation has started to offer more licenses, offer more female licenses, made the licensing more accessible. Um, B licenses have actually just now gone into the hands of um, the states as well as U.S. clubs. So now there's going to be more B licenses offered throughout um, whereas it was, as I alluded to earlier in the session, that we had to apply and there were so many people being denied because there was only so many courses being held and they were only being held in the technical center in Kansas City or in Florida. So again, just the accessibility to those courses were so limited and so few that there wasn't enough people getting access to that knowledge and to those roles, um, which then doesn't allow them to get roles within the youth game, within ECNL, within girls academy, within the collegiate levels. So I think we're kind of taking steps to get there. I think that having the role models like Yale and Casey Stoney and Becky Tweed and other females that can get those roles now shows people that they are accessible. I think that's another kind of roadblock in people's brains is that if nobody's in those roles then why would I get in that role you got to see it you got to see it before you can believe you can do it type thing is what you're saying there yeah yeah, yeah. and I think that that's just our culture and you in in the U.S. that you know if nobody's in those positions then why should I why am I that outlier um mm. and I was very fortunate that I was raised by a military father and he kind of instilled those things in me anyway of, you know, hey, you're independent, you're strong, you don't need anybody or anything else. Um, so go after your dreams. Um, and that's, I think, what's allowed me to kind of take those chances and take those risks earlier on in my career. And even now, because there are so many clubs where we, even at the youth environment, don't have female coaches. Some of our co, you know, teams, that, clubs that we coach against don't have any females coaching their ECNL programs on the female side. And, and I don't know if it's just a lack of coaches out there or if it's, again, just our male counterparts beating us out for those positions, which, you know, right. is what it is. But I also think that there are a lot of women that just don't have 
that drive to go out there or don't have that, you know, want to take a risk. Um, so I, and that's, again, that's a generalized for every woman out there. But. When I started this podcast, I promised that I would ask the, the real questions. And if everyone's out there listening, they're like, well, I wish they'd ask this. I wish they'd ask that. And we got to, we got to do this in the interest of balance. I mean, we have to support more routes into coaching for everybody who is underrepresented. We need more diversity. We need more, you know, not just not just male, female. We need we need more that more with more diversity becomes a raising of standards across the board and a more inclusive sport. And yep. quite quite frankly, I'll, I'll go out and say this: whether your opinion is that you know diversity should or shouldn't be a case, I don't care. Football doesn't care. Football is for everybody. And if you have the opinion of anything different, go and find something else to do because football is for everybody, regardless yeah. of all the myriad of things that can marginalize people. And yeah, 100%. And I think that, you know, it's, it's not to say that, uh, what's the word, predisposition or something that, you know, that yeah, people don't yeah. already have that, you know, idea in their head that, oh, you're a female, we don't want to hire you, but we need to interview yeah. you. You know, like it's out there. It sucks to say, but it is, it's out there. And, you know, we have to deal with it all the time. And I think that mm. you kind of hit the nail on the head that some people don't realize that it's even a thing. And, mm. you know, hopefully this will kind of show them that it is a thing and it's happened to multiple women, not just myself. Mm. Um, and that if we don't know about it, we can't change it. Mm. And that's so. certainly what we want to do. That's what we want to do with the pro player podcast. We want to shine a light on that. And like you said, having Casey on later in the series, having Yale on, I think you know is our way of, of highlighting that and, and pushing this forward. And this is one of the reasons why I was so interested in talking to you because you've lived the life, you're living the life, you're in the, the struggle, and you understand it from a very granular level. And we have to change it. And and like I said, in in the interest of balance, you know, how do we walk the line and get this right? Because there will be people out there who'll say to us, Well, you know, that oh, every, every job is now for females and females get all the jobs and it's unfair and everything else. So, you know, in the interest of balance, how, how, do, we, how do we navigate that? That You know, there's somebody being promoted who isn't ready or doesn't have the skills to do a job just because they are female then in that instance. You know, what are, yeah. where, where think, is the rhetoric it, around that? Yeah, I think it comes back to those people that are in the position to do the hiring and the you know, the putting people in those positions, whether it's the GM, whether it's the CEO, whether it's the technical directors to do their due diligence, right? Because it, it like you kind of alluded to, if somebody is hired in a position that they're not ready for, then you're setting that person up for failure and your club up for failure, right? So you're not only hurting yourself, but you're hurting that individual. And we want to keep coaches in the environment. We don't want them to leave the environment. So if you put the person, you know, say a brand new coach who's come out, of you know their D license into an ECNL head coach role just because you want a female um, in that role, it's actually going to do the opposite, right? That that coach isn't going to be ready. They're they're going to have various challenges with parents, with the players, with just the environment in general. Um, their coworkers who say, "Oh well, I got passed up for that job, and I have a higher license." And again, not to say that licensure is everything. Um, sometimes it's a a, a former player who doesn't have the licensure, who gets that role, great. Then just encourage them to get licenses to kind of back the information they already have um, and support them and make them a little bit more ready. Um, but again, I think it comes down to the the people in those positions to put coaches in those roles. Oh, absolutely, agree. And look how many examples of successful coaches, regardless of, of 
you know, male or female. But when I came to the United States, I was very fortunate early on in my um, my time here to meet uh, Nicky Ezo Brown, who was the head coach of West Virginia. And I'm not sure I've ever seen it probably in my life, three or four people, regardless of, 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 of male, female, three or four coaches in my life who command the level of respect and the level of presence in a room as she did. She, she, she went out of her way without even knowing anything about me or who I was to show me around the entire West Virginia complex, uh, the, the whole thing, basketball, football, women's football, give me an insight into college sport and everything there was. And I was captivated in her presence for two and a half hours. Every minute, everything she said, just the way she was. And obviously, I then went on to learn about how successful the programs have been, how wonderful she is at, at producing new, new coaches and staff and mentoring people. And, and the program they have there at West Virginia is phenomenal, right? It's but, funny that she was in her because she was just uh, here uh, for the Big 12 championship. Yeah, uh, indeed, indeed. Here in yeah, Austin, and she Rock. came out to a yeah. couple of our sessions. So She did, to, to recruit and watch. Yeah, phenomenal. Huge doff of the cap to, to Nikki and, and others. I mean, they, you, you mentioned there in terms of, you know, the role Yale is playing and, and Casey. I was fortunate to spend a bit of time with Casey during her England career, and, and I always knew she was going to want to be a top manager. But I, I am also inspired by people like Cara Morey, who is – Cara Mori, for those who don't know, is the uh, ice hockey coach, uh, head ice hockey coach at Princeton. Oh, yeah. And okay. there's some amazing, there's amazing stuff out there that she has put out there in terms of culture and, um, you know, just being a head coach of a top program. And just her life in terms of her, her partner was an NFL player. And they kind of did that whole thing where he moved around a lot and then he retired. And then they kind of flipped it and focused on her career. And then she moved for jobs that she wanted. And then she has this amazing story of how she became a, a coach, you know, at a program like Princeton. And I, I was listening to her work the other day and I'm just inspired by these stories and this strength and this character and the general, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, but why shouldn't these female coaches be leading the way? And why shouldn't they be experts? Why does it matter what gender they are? And, and they're out there doing the work. And, and I think sometimes I can give you a list of a thousand male coaches that I know who shouldn't be doing what they're doing, but they are. So I think from my perspective, it's it's the best person for the job at the time with, yes, the qualifications are essential. You've alluded to it there. I encourage everybody to seek out the USF badges and qualifications and any kind of CPD they can do. We're also going a step further here at the Pro Player. We have partnered with a company called Coach Better, who now give us the opportunity and the ability to deliver the UEFA licensing to anybody who's interested in, in, in getting that. And especially female coaches out there who want to get on that on that you know that thread and and go from nothing to a B license level with a guaranteed space on the course on a female only course we're, we're providing that as well at the pro player for for you so we'll drop a link in the in the description below and anybody who's listening who wants to get on that you know get in touch with us because any coach education you seek out is is going to help and is massively necessary this is a very important conversation that I don't know that is being had in the national stake of things. And that's sad, isn't it? Yep. But luckily it's starting to get out there more and more. And I think that, you know, convention and, you know, even just the women in football out there in um, the European realm um, is also helping. And, you know, mm. uh, UEFA as well as the FA are starting to do female mentorship programs. Mm. Um, they're doing an internship with England soccer right now. I know they're doing mm. a big thing. Tottenham's even started an internship program. 
Um, yeah. Emma Hayes, the talk of her coming across to U.S. soccer, yeah, huge. definitely going to be a huge yeah. um, impact. Yeah. And hopefully, again, we'll take those steps. I mean, Jill Ellis was just the start, right? And the fact that she was so successful and, you know, was such a big um, role model for so many women, mm. female coaches that um, hopefully if Emma does come across that that's another scout and or, you know, spurt in growth for the sport. It's definitely the next chapter, isn't it? It's definitely the next chapter. And it, it, it is important. It is important that it's talked about and it is important that it's a balanced conversation. Absolutely. As we, as we've talked about here, but um, yeah, anybody, you know, anybody listening who is interested or has never even maybe thought about coaching um, that wants to get involved then just, just reach out and get in touch because there are a lot of people out there to help you. I will call upon the United Soccer Coaches Association at this point, though, and say that recently I tried to contact them for a former player of mine, a collegiate student athlete who graduated, who I thought would make a phenomenal female coach. And I called upon them for some support and to know what programs they had to, to help. And there wasn't really much there in terms of real life support, in terms of financial support for licensing or... Uh, yes, they support members and there was a couple of programs, but I was left a bit underwhelmed by why a student can't graduate, come out of four year career in, in you know, playing soccer and then automatically be enrolled in a program that gets them ready to go back into the college game. Because we need more uh -oh. student, female student athletes coming and doing that path. Um, yeah. So I will call upon the United Soccer Coach Association there and say, I feel like there's more can be done. Um and I know there's a lot of key stakeholders out there that would be interested in that. So maybe some people should get their heads together for sure. Um, move, moving on then, moving on then, you've lived a life of the youth soccer coach. You've lived a life, um, you know, that everyone in soccer will understand in terms of, you know, how it, how it is, you know, on a personal level, professional level. But what is your experience then inside the youth game? What is your experience of the level of coaching and standards of coaching and how, you know, I, I don't want to get on soapbox here, but I, I have a bit of a, a bee in my bonnet about how some young female players are being treated, perhaps not everywhere and not, you know, not in, this is not, you know, maybe it is endemic of, of youth sport in this country at the moment. Carly Lloyd's comments recently were scathing in terms of the youth environment around female players. And I want to try and add a balanced response, but I do agree with that. And I have seen it for myself. I've been an ECNL director. I've been in the college game and in the youth game. And I am concerned for certainly the extremes that I see in the youth game now around the country. Not everywhere. Like you said, you mentioned great clubs there like Sting. I know Stu Holden at Sting there. I, I actually had to ring him once and apologise for letting him down on an ID camp I was going to come to and some personal issues, family issues I had to deal with and I couldn't go and do it. And he was great with me and he understood and I, and I get that. There are great clubs out there. There are people running amazing youth clubs in the United States. Let's have it right. There are also some cowboys out there who are doing it and I, and I worry for some people in those environments. That's my soapbox. What's your experience having lived it and been in it? Um, yeah, I think that Again, just being someone who's been in so many different clubs and, and so many different roles, whether it's collegiate, I've seen both sides of the spectrum. You know, there's an amazing coaches that foster that love of the game and, you know, diversity and empowerment for the player. But then there's that coach that is still stuck in the old way of how you coach and joysticking and 
yelling a lot. Um, and I don't know if that's just due to lack of understanding of what else is out there, you know, whether it's the, and I, and I go back to the licensing programs that, you know, really encourage the coach to take a step back and not coach as much and think about creating the problem in a practice session, allowing the players to solve the problem, you know, so, and then helping them with that solution, stepping back out, creating the problem again, you know, um, there's been times where I actually had, (laughs) I had a, I was coaching boys in Seattle and there was a coach who just couldn't believe it. I was coaching against him. And he was like, wait, you're the coach. I can't believe it. And he literally says this to me and I'm sitting there going, what? (laughs) Like, what age are we in right now? Are we, are we in the fifties right now? I don't understand. Anyway. And, and long story short, his player did something egregious at me from me coaching my kid and the coach doesn't do anything. And I look over at the coach and I'm like, are you, are you going to let this happen? Like, is this, and my player steps in the way and is like, I've got you coach. Like I'll take care of it. And I was like, no, 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 it's fine. I'm an adult. We're okay. He can go back and play. Like we can, you know, make it work. And later on the mother actually, or the father of this kid brings the kid across and forces the kid to apologize to me. Mm. And it just made me laugh because I looked over at the coach and I said, you created this. Mm. Obviously the parent didn't because they're forcing Mm. this kid to apologize to me, Mm. but you've instilled some sort of idea in your head, in this kid's head, that it's okay to talk to women that way. And he just was so shocked that I was even addressing it. He was like, oh, like, she's actually got a point and I can't say anything mm. to the opposite. And, and again, and, and I just feel bad for some of these co- kids and players, whether they're male or female that have a coach that mm. is literally in it for the wrong reasons. It's for, you know, I, and, and they're doing so many things and there's so many clubs out there. And again, I go back to the directors. It's their job to understand that. Like, yes, we're in a need for coaches and we have a huge need, but do we really like, do we really have that big of a need to we have to keep those people in those positions around our youth players? And, you know, it causes them to quit the game so early in life because they're around coaches like that. We, we need to have a we need to have a proper conversation about this nationally. We do. And it's not being done. Right. And I, I have this I have this idea or this phrase. And, and I, it's quite simple. At what cost? That's that's my that's my line. Right? Yes, we're winning. Yes, we've got all these championships. Yes, we're, you know, this program is successful. Or yes, we have this status. At what cost? And I don't want to look back in 15 years' time and start to hear stories from people who've been through it now and are going through it and have been through it in recent years where they tell us terrible things about how their lives were affected and how their, you know, later life was affected. I don't want to wait for that. I don't want to wait for that to, to come to pass. You know, we've already done that in our professional league here in the country, and we've already found out on the back end of all the things that were going wrong, and nobody's shone a line on it, light on it at the start. And that's yep. been done, that's been talked about, and things are in place to change that from happening. But in the youth game, in the collegiate game, we're not having that conversation right now, and we should be. And ultimately, we will get to a stage where, you know, this is probably become the norm in a lot of ways and professionalism is lacking education is lacking i do this because i've always done it or like i'm 
like I've been told in many environments since I've arrived in the United States, well, American players can't think, so you have to joystick them around, or they can't make decisions under pressure. So if you want to win, you have to do it for them. And every time, like you said, I've walked away from these environments. Or And, and there's a very real side to this as well, Melanie, that you're talking about, isn't there? It's, it's great to have your principles and have your philosophies, but if you're going to walk away from a job every 18 months, you, you have to find somewhere to live and you have to find another job and you have to get by. And, and I've done that and you've done that and it's hard. And a lot of people, everyone should make their own decision. They should choose, you know, what is right for them. But Well, and I think it also kind of comes back to, like you said, to the level of uh, at what cost, right? And in the fact of what job are you in? What is it? What does it mean to win or lose? Is it part of your job that you have to win, right? At the collegiate environment, sometimes you have to win. At the ECNL environment, sometimes you have to win. So there are need, there is a need sometimes to joystick the players and to help them to 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 get the result. But again, it's at what cost? How often are you doing those things? How how much development are you taking away from the players by doing those things? You know, are you joysticking at practice? as well or is it just in games and you know and i think that again not that licensing is everything but it it teaches you a different way to teach the game and i think that because we don't have enough youth coaches with the knowledge of how to coach and develop players we get players that have to be joysticked at certain levels because that's what they got when they were younger and so they don't have the inherent knowledge of how to play the game because they've been told how to play it the entire time. So yeah, they do need to be joystick because the coach before them did such a disservice to that player that now the only time they're being developed as a U13 player, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> so then it's, it's, it's amazing. Years or three years to catch up to then be able to yeah. not be joystick. It's an amazing, it's an amazing way to look at it. And you're dead right because the the thing about the US that I've learned is nobody's really preparing players for their own program. In youth development in the UK, you take a child at seven, the ultimate goal is for that child to play for the first team, men's, women's, whatever it might be, right? And you take care of their education, you take care of their holistic development, but ultimately you're producing a player for your own team. In this country, invariably, most people outside of the professional game, even people... In the professional game, you could argue, on the women's side at least, are producing players to go off to college or sign for a professional club. It won't be the people who are developing them between the ages of six and 17 per se. Right? As that changes, and it is beginning to change, I see, and as more people go to the professional game you know, versus the college route, and that's a whole other debate we can have, people will begin to understand this more poignantly. If you are not the person developing that player for something that you know, is the long is your club at the end. It it is much easier for people to say, well, I'm just going to do this for three years because it benefits them. And that's what I'm seeing. I'm seeing coaches who say, well, I'm going to do this, forget the holistic approach, forget their level of learning, forget their level of development. Joysticking a player in the very low cognitive stages of learning has some merit in terms of developing neural pathways to the brain to make decisions and understand them. We won't get into all the science of it, but there is an element of blocked practice or fixed practice that can aid learning. To take that and run with it to the extent that three years later, you haven't allowed the player to engage, speculate, learn, develop, is not just a fallacy. It's a crime. It's a crime to the youth of our game, and it's a crime to the youth 
coming through and aspiring? Why is nobody having this conversation now? Well, and I think that there, the sad part is we there are people that are having the conversation, but the American culture is also killing the conversation. Um, and the fact that, you know, too many parents within the youth environment don't care about holistic learning and don't care about, you know, necessarily the development of the kid. It's about, oh, are they winning or are they not? Um, I had a player a year ago who left my team primarily because they were, our team was struggling. And we're in the Texas conference in the ECNL. And because this parent just doesn't understand the, the layout of the environment of ECNL and that we are in the toughest conference and or toughest region. So we are going to be one of the lower clubs within our region because of our player pool. But if they go over to look, they're going to win games because they play against other clubs that aren't maybe at that same strength level. And so that parent goes to a joystick and coach or to a winning team, just purely because of the American culture of, I want to win games. I want my kid to win. And it's just baffling sometimes that again, I think it comes to parent education and it comes to the, the club's education of what their methodology is. And if their methodology is actually developing players, then they need to be hiring the coaches that are willing to develop players. So I think it's also somebody sticking to their own quote unquote methodologies and what they believe in and not just hiring somebody to hire somebody. It's you got your finger on the pulse EML and that is something that I've, you know, long felt myself. Now I will say that there's a couple of things here. There's I, I've had a lot of experience in the Texas conference DCNL. I spent a bit of time recruiting in that conference. There are some great clubs there. There, you know, Solar, FC Dallas. Like you said, challenge. I forget probably the others. Sting, yourself, you, you mentioned. There's others, of course, but that is a really competitive, high-level conference, and there are some great people working in those clubs that I know and I've seen work. This this higher level of youth sport and this idea of winning. I want to go on record and say that winning is not a bad thing, especially in American culture. There's nothing wrong with winning. Nobody who is talking about developing players and looking after, you know, players. Uh, off the pitch or, or teaching in the right way, as you said, you qualified teacher. You, you've brought those principles into coaching. You don't have to sacrifice winning for that, but it is a process. And I, honestly, if you ask me what the results of my under 14 club career were and what those games were like, and whether we, I know we won more games than we lost in my youth career because I played in a decent team and, and it really, you know, I, I remember playing a lot and I had lots of minutes. I remember all those things, right? But I couldn't tell you what the results are. I couldn't tell you which games we won and which ones we lost. I don't know where we finished in the league standings. And I think sometimes we forget that. The other side of this is governance, right? And, and again, I don't know. I'm no expert in, in the governance of US soccer and how all the leagues run and everything else. But it does seem to me like a lot of this is laid at the door of the individual leagues and to say we, are, we have oversight. And I know there's work going on specifically in ECNL at the moment, because I know some of the people who are consulting on it, right? I know there's work going on to talk about oversight and standards and, and what minimum standards for clubs should be, but that isn't there at the moment and hasn't been there for the first 10, 12 years of ECNL. I can't speak to the GA because I've, I've never been involved with the programme, so I'll only speak to the ECNL here. But governance, in my experience, in British sport, European sport, English sport, Welsh sport, is so tight and so... It has such good oversight with such a good groundswell of support from welfare officers 
and league welfare officers and, like you said, people in positions that we would deem now directors of coaching, heads of coaching, whatever it might be. The oversight and the quality assurance to me is very, very different in the UK and in Europe than it is in the US. Why is that? I think it just has to do with the the age of the environment, right? I mean, the fact that it's been over there for so much longer than it has been here. And because we're trying to fix so many things, I think that it's, okay, well, this person can fix it. Oh, this person can fix it. Oh, this person can fix it. Uh, prime example, we had a conversation with Cindy Parlocone uh, recently when I was at the World Cup this summer. And we kind of asked her, what's happening with us soccer and ecnl and ga and youth environment and how are they looking to try to impact it and cindy's answer was actually it was so diplomatic but so on the nose and the fact that they can only do so much so fast and they can only have so much of an impact at so many different levels um and yeah you know they can try to say x y and z but how do they enforce it and so i think they're trying to figure stuff out and i think that they've tried to do stuff in the past and it's how how is it working? How is it not working? And I think that's why they've started hiring these different roles and trying to put people in those positions to start to do the right things. Now it's kind of as you alluded to, okay, what's ECNL going to do? What is GA going to do? And I think that leadership has to kind of be on their own accord as well in that they need to be held responsible for what's happening in their own needs mm. as well. And, and I will say, I do believe in the leadership at the top of these, you know, and, and in what they're trying to do. I, I am hearing that they are consulting with numbers of peoples about how to bring in minimum standards and how to develop, you know, off the pitch and how to ensure coaching standards of quality. So I do have faith uh, in the people running that, that, it w that it, the change will come about. Yeah, I, I am concerned. I am concerned about the current state of the game across across the United States. Again, not everywhere, but again, yeah. I would, I would, I would reiterate you know, Carly Lloyd's points about the game. And, and I would tend to agree with her more than I disagree with her in what she's saying at the moment. But it's really interesting to hear you talking about, um, you know, your experiences being the same and you seeing it from from that side as well. Um, yeah. this, is a, this is a phenomenal conversation and probably one we have to pick up at another point again, I think, in the future when maybe there are some changes afoot. As we wrap up here, I want to kind of talk to you a little bit about, you know, your aspirations and where you go next and what you think the next steps are for, um, you know, for your own career, but, but also for, you know, the youth game and, and looking forward, perhaps what you're excited about and what, what, you know, what we have hope in and what we believe will be the case going forward. Can we, can we, re, can we kind of recap with that at the end here? Yeah, so... Um... I think I'll start with just like what I'm excited for. I'm excited in the growth of the game within the within the U.S. Um, just in the fact of even just having another professional organization come in on the women's side uh, within USL, um, having the USL Super League, the USLW programs, USL Academy. Um, I'm interested to see how that's going to affect the climate of soccer within the United States. Um I'm excited for the, the growth of the NWSL, um, you know, with Bay FC coming in and um, the Utah Royals coming in this next year. Um, that should be a great addition to the, the the league. And hopefully it just shows that, you know, the growth in the women's game is out there and we just need the supporters to have it. And with um, the youth leagues, again, I think that 
the changes are coming, the changes are happening, right? I think the, you know, ECNL is trying to do the right things and, and go into that role. GA was created for the right reasons. It's, you know, whether or not they can continue those reasons um, is yet to be seen. Um, and then just the fact that coaching education is going to be more accessible moving forward um, should be really exciting as well. And the fact that we'll have so many more licensed coaches and or coaches with the knowledge that they want to, to go after positions. Um, as far as my own aspirations within the game, um, I've kind of decided that the only thing I really haven't stepped into is a professional environment and or coaching within the professional environment. Um, and even though I was in a collegiate environment for a short stint, that's another thing that I kind of just want to find my niche. I want to see if, you know, now as an, at an older age, am I able to coach these players that aren't so close to my age anymore? Um, and how I do within that. So just, you know, putting feelers out there and, you know, trying to find the right job for me, um, whether it's again, uh, an assistant role at a, at a college, even though I'm quote unquote overqualified, um, or a head coaching role, um, or working within, like I said, the new roles that are popping up every day from USLW positions or USL Super League positions. Um, so the bonus is that jobs are out there. You just have to try to find them. Mel, I can't, I can't thank you enough. Um, this has been the first in our series of kind of looking at the youth game and, you know, female coaches in particular in North America and trying to champion and highlight the opportunities uh, and the change points and where we need to go. And, you know, I think it's been an excellent conversation. Hopefully it's the start of, you know, another few conversations on this matter that we can have here on the Pro Player Podcast. But yeah, it's definitely it's definitely something that I think is relevant in terms of the youth landscape in the country and also um, in terms of aspiring coaches and people wanting to get into both the youth game, the college game and the professional game. Um, later on in the series, and sorry, in series two, we're going to have Carrie Taylor come on who is the Vice President of Operations for the USL. She's going to talk to us about the whole, you know, USL phenomenon coming in and all these new teams popping up and what that means in different markets and how that's going to change the female game going forward as well and the knock-on effects it will ultimately have for, for aspiring youth female players in the, in the country too. But um, I think there's so much more in this topic. I think that's a great start. I think, you know, I think it's a balanced view and it's a really you know, on the money look at exactly where we are in the country right now. And a really interesting time for, for female sport because I, I've only ever grew up knowing the dominance of the U.S. women's national team and looking from afar and been fortunate enough to play against the U.S. on a number of occasions, never beaten them yet, but, um, you know, played against them certainly a couple of times. And, and now we are in a really interesting time in female soccer in the US, if Emma Hayes is coming in, as we said, and we are starting a new a new chapter in that, I think everybody is looking on hoping that the national team can go from strength to strength and and claw some some ground back perhaps on some of the European nations that have that have come to the forefront in the last decade. But ultimately what this means is this is a great time for female players, female coaches, the female game in general in the US. You know, we have a huge opportunity in front of us over the next decade. I hope you're going to be involved in that and be a big part of that as well. And I can't sign off in any other way than to give you the floor and let you have the last word on where we're going and where we are. So please, the floor is yours again. Uh, again, I think you just kind of hit the nail on the head. Just excitement, I think, is a great way to to end it in the fact that there's so many opportunities out there for players, for coaches, for, you know, for employers, 
to create an environment that's welcoming and that continues to grow the game. And I hope that we take advantage of that and that we take advantage of, you know, what's going to happen in the next uh, five to 10 years. And I hope everybody's watching and that it continues to grow and that everybody who is able to contribute contributes. Thank you, Mel. It's been a fantastic hour. Can't thank you enough for everything you've given us here. I know you're busy and just want to say a huge thank you from everybody here at theproplayer.com and we'll be here supporting you in your in your future career. Hopefully we get you back on at some stage and uh, we'll see where we go from here. But we're wishing you all the best. Thank you so much for your time and for being on the episode. Great. Thank you. Yeah, of course.